Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Making Milestones podcast. Today's podcast, I wanted to recap my time in Paris, France, for the Horse Welfare Conference that Collectif Pour Les Chevaux hosted, where we discussed hyperflexion and initiatives that we could take to prevent that from occurring in competition. It was a super fun, informative weekend, and I'm so thankful for all of the people who attended and the speeches that I got to listen to, it was super cool being immersed in a setting where there are so many highly educated people to speak on topics pertaining to horse welfare, and it was a fantastic experience. For those of you who are not aware, I was invited there as a speaker to talk about issues pertaining to hyperflexion and competition reform, and I'm also one of the co-founders of the Alliance for Horse Welfare and Sport, which Collectif Pour Les Chevaux is also a part of. So it was a really neat experience, and I'm excited to kind of recap this for you. Um, what I do want to say is that obviously this recap is coming from my perspective. I'm going to paraphrase things that happened and certain things that people said, namely the FEI officials that attended, but it's not necessarily going to be direct quotes because it's just going off of what I remember. And if you want to watch the whole conference and see the entire discussions and listen to all the speeches, I highly recommend it. There's a lot of really great uh, discussions that lots of amazing people did. So. It's a lot of hours of discussion and a lot of information, so you might need to pick away at it over the course of a few days. But once that's available, I do highly recommend that everyone check out the footage and then they can come to their own conclusions regarding the people's speech, what the FEI officials said, and all the information that was shared. But it's a really great source of information if you're interested in learning about all things horses and biomechanics relating to hyperflexion as well as correct carriage and other welfare specific issues in competition. So I highly recommend checking that out. The live recording for both days of the conference is going to be released in early October because the host of the conference is taking a couple weeks of a break because it was so much work to get this conference to happen. So bear with that and the entire recording will be put onto YouTube for people to watch if they so choose. I'm also gonna be releasing clips from my discussions as I edit them. I have to, I have a lot of editing to catch up on. But anyways, we're going to jump right into the discussion after I do some shameless self-promotion because my podcast doesn't have any ads other than my own. So if you're interested in supporting the podcast and my other work, you can do so by shopping my store, which has equestrian apparel and horse bridles. You can do so at shop milestone ec. That's shop milestone eq.com. You can also subscribe to my Patreon page, which is p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash sd equus that's s-d-e-q-u-u-s and those links will also be down in the podcast description the patreon's a great thing to do if you're looking for training help and advice and also behind the scenes and q a's and all that jazz and it's a really great way to support my work especially since a lot of the information stuff i put out online i don't necessarily get much in the way of revenue for but i really like doing it and i think it's important so i appreciate everyone who's supported me and all of my patreon subscribers thank you so much uh it's all of you that make things like going to paris to speak at this conference possible and it was just so rewarding and it's something that's so important to me and i'm really glad i was able to go and do my speeches because honestly I wasn't sure if I was actually going to end up going, and until I was like actually physically on the plane, I wasn't convinced that I was even going. So anyways, let's just jump right into it. So 
when I flew into France, I actually went to Normandy first, and I rode with Lauren Allport uh, and got to hang out at her farm, which was awesome. It was really nice and refreshing to be with someone who competes at the level that she does and just see all of the horse-centric care that is at her farm, like her competition horses living outside, getting to be turned out in herds, being barefoot and competing barefoot. Like, I hadn't realized that Gabbana competes barefoot, and I think that's super cool. Uh, so it was really nice, and it was a heat wave, so it was really hot. Um, but outside of the heat wave, the whole time in Paris was really nice. I was just like, oh my god, this is so warm. And I was dying a little in my little Canadian heart, because it was like 30 to 35 degrees on all of the days that I was there. Brutal. Uh, but it was super fun. I got to ride at Lauren's farm and ride several of her horses, including Gabbana, Boo, Urano, and... Um, I think, yeah, I think, and Fernanda, that's who I'm forgetting. Um, all of which are super lovely. And then I also helped gallop some of her clients' racehorses, which unfortunately for the vlog, that's not going to be on video just because to respect clients' privacy, like we didn't take any video of that. I just got video and GoPro of me riding her horses, but it was really fun. And I actually loved getting to ride the racehorses there because like what I noticed is they're all so much better behaved than the ones that I would gallop here when I was galloping. Um, racehorses here in Canada and it was really nice like they were just like they hack them out and they also like work them both directions so that they're not just going to be one-sided and it was just really cool to see the way that they did things because it was just so different than a lot of what I was introduced to in Canada and the horses were better behaved because of it because they also got turnout and I think the hacking is also great for their brains because they had to hack all the way down to the track and whatnot. So there's way more warm-up and stuff than what you typically see or what I typically saw when I was doing galloping here. And it was just really nice and refreshing. And it was also super cool to hear about like how like the racing industry works in Europe because it is quite a bit different than it is in Canada and the U.S. And they also have like more drugging-related rules, um, which is also great. So yeah, that was, that was so fun. But anyways, this podcast is mostly going to be a recap of the conference. And the vlog with Lauren, I think, will give a good recap of the time that I spent at her place, and that'll be up on YouTube at some point, so you can check that out then. Um, anyways, so my speeches at the conference that I did were on non-horse-friendly riding, as well as the need to speak up in the industry to promote better welfare practices, how to do so, and why I felt it was important, in addition to my journey in self-reflection and altering my riding practices and kind of where I landed where I am today in speaking up for horse welfare. And so I'll also post those full discussions on YouTube at some point so that people can listen to them and check those out. There is also a lot of other people who are speaking. Like I can't even count how many speakers there were. There were tons. There, the speakers included osteopaths, uh, veterinarians, like equine veterinarians, body workers, um, lawyers, and just all sorts of professionals in the industry, including bit fitters, saddle fitters, everything. Just virtually everything you can think of. It was really, really great, and there's so many good speeches. So, yeah, once again, I cannot stress enough rewatching the live once it's available. But what I do want to talk about is the fact that there was so much information shared and so many scholarly sources and like credible citations that were given by all of the presenters that, in my opinion, it should pretty unequivocally prove the need for change in the competition world and why hyperflexion is such a prevalent issue that really needs to be discussed. There was so much given 
like by way of studies on hyperflexion or even just riding behind the vertical and LDR, which is low deep round. I'll talk more about what that is in a second. And then we also got firsthand accounts from veterinarians and body workers discussing problems that they've seen in horses who've been ridden in hyperflexion, which isn't necessarily a study. It, there is a certain level of bias with firsthand accounts, but I think that it's important to consider them because we don't really get a ton of funding for horse studies. So the firsthand accounts of veterinarians and body workers that specialize in rehabbing horses who have problems because of that, I think are still important because they also are supported by a lot of the studies that we see as well. So I think those are relevant. So LDR, for those who aren't aware, is low deep round. It is a form of hyperflexion in my opinion. Essentially the premise of it is letting the horse stretch their neck a bit so that their head and neck are lowered, but they're still being ridden quite behind the vertical. And really kind of sucked in intense. And the problem with this, like, even if we're going to pretend that it doesn't impact their welfare mentally or physically, is that it results in poor biomechanics. Like, when they're ridden in this position, they cannot see properly because their vision is impeded due to them being behind the vertical. And it also changes their way of going. Like, several of the speakers that discussed we're speaking about low deep round and going into detail about why it impacts biomechanics. Like for example, I would recommend looking at Dr. Karen LeBrant's discussion once it's available because she listed off tons of photos of horses who had pathologies because of being ridden in hyperflexion and LDR and showed before and afters and went into detail about how it impedes the biomechanics and why. So for someone who is wanting to learn about that, I think that's a really great discussion to watch. But there's also quite a few others that spoke on that. So basically just watch all of them. But yeah, so low deep round is also considered to be a welfare issue in my opinion because the studies that we do have on hyperflexion, there's some of them that have even included being like very like moderately behind the vertical, not severely behind the vertical and still found welfare issues pertaining to that. And because of that, I think that it's important that we don't shrug it off as a non-issue just because it's not quite as severe as what people deem to be roll current hyperflexion. Like we shouldn't only be concerned about horses who have their chin to their chest. Like it shouldn't need to get to that level of severity before people are concerned about it. Because the fact of the matter is, even something as simple as impeding a horse's vision in a way where they're essentially only able to stare at the ground, that could be mentally detrimental because as a flight animal, they can't even see where they're going. But also, there is evidence that it impedes their ability to properly breathe because it makes their larynx not as open. So again, there's enough evidence there that I think it shouldn't be something that people shrug off just to convenience ourselves because there isn't really evidence out there that suggests that it's totally fine or beneficial to horses. So if it's neutral at best or impactful to horse welfare, I think it's something that we should care about because there's better ways of doing things. And also, even if it's neutral, if it's impeding horses' biomechanics in a way that can cause lasting problems in their physical structure, I don't think it's something that should be defended. The reason why I'm speaking so much about low deep round is because one of the judges that was invited, a five-star level international dressage judge by the name of Bernard Morel, or yeah, I think it's, it's French, so maybe I'm, I might be butchering this. Apologies. But Bernard Morel in one of his speeches, he actually openly defended LDR and insinuated that those at the conference 
were overreacting and painting it to be way worse than it was. And he argued that it's beneficial in a lot of cases and that in experienced hands, it's completely harmless. And he cited one study that found it to be beneficial to the horse or that it actually had good effects and that it was good for the horse. And I asked for the citation to the study. I was never given it, but Dr. Karen LeBrant actually approached me and said that she thought she knew what study he was referencing and gave me the information to look it up, which I did. And the study does not have very much in the way of credibility because a good portion of it was regarding rider perception of what the horse looked to be the most comfortable in. And there's other studies that have been done on rider perception of horse behavior that have found that even lifelong equestrians, even elite level riders and professionals are not very good at recognizing equine stress behaviors. So we can't just go off of rider perception. It doesn't have as concrete of findings as the studies where they're testing stress markers like blood and saliva cortisol levels. So It was just a weird study to cite. And also, when we have so many different studies now, finding that behind the vertical LDR and roll curve slash hyperflexion are damaging to the horse mentally and physically, it is an indicator of confirmation bias for a judge to find one study that supports what they want to believe and cite that while ignoring all of the other information that was given. The weirdest thing about this occurrence is that the FEI officials spoke on day two of the conference. So if they'd watched any of the conference from the day prior, there was so many discussions that went into detail about the harm that this type of riding causes. And I'm assuming that Bernard didn't watch any of the conference from the day before, or if he had, that's kind of scary because he got nothing out of it. But I do find it odd that the FEI didn't at least debrief him on what was discussed to try to avoid him saying that because I think what was most striking to me about the situation is not the fact that he believes that because I already knew that judges had to have that type of belief system in order for it to be so enabled in con- in competition. But It was crazy to me that he would say that at a welfare conference that is quite literally speaking out against that type of riding and finding welfare issues with it, where the crowd of people there are all people who believe it to be detrimental outside of the FEI officials. Like, everyone who was invited and was there in person was there because they wanted to speak out on the welfare issues and participate in discussion of how we can alter their occurrence and help promote more ethical competition. So even just from like a PR standpoint, it struck me as really odd that this wasn't something that they tried to discourage him from doing. And like, maybe they did. I can't really speak for that, but he, he did it anyways is what I'm getting at. It, it struck me as really odd that in this setting that he would say those things because it just seems like a poor choice from a PR perspective because it's going to p- inevitably paint the FEI in a bad light when they're in that crowd. Like it was the wrong audience to do that in front of. And I, that, that's what struck me as so weird because when he said that, like there was like kind of like a collective gasp in the room and like everyone was looking around and being like, Oh my God, is he actually doing this? What the heck? And, it was it was just really weird to me and i think that because of that like it's great that the fei sent officials to be there and i think that was amazing of them to do however i feel that their choice to send representatives was largely for public relations reasons and saying that they were there so they can use that to justify their commitment to welfare issues in place of 
actually doing anything. But we'll see whether or not they do anything, because I could be wrong. Maybe they're going to start having sweeping action across the industry. But that's what I personally believe that they sent people for, first and foremost. And I'll get further into why I believe that. But it was it was just so odd. <laughs> um, so anyways, I during the question period after this, I asked Bernard... One, if he could cite the source for his belief that LDR was harmless to the horse. And then the second part of my question was, what type of schooling and education do judges and stewards have to help ensure that they are correctly reading equine behavior and can understand stress signals and pain behaviors in horses so that they can ensure that they aren't rewarding these in competition if you are a judge or ignoring them and warm up in competition in the case of the stewards? When I asked this, again, this is my perspective, but there was, like, a a, a very <laughs> obvious, like, pause in their response. Like, it was just radio silent, and Bernard, who was on Zoom, was just, like, looking at the camera like he didn't know what to say. And again, this is my perspective. I could be completely wrong. Uh, he could have just been putting together thoughts on what to say, but it felt like they hadn't, they didn't have an answer to my question. Um... And so the steward who was part of this, who was also on Zoom, his name was Didier Ferreira. Uh, for I, I, I can't like I, I can't remember his last name. Um, but I'll, I'll be able to list off all these names um, in the de- description of this podcast if I remember. Otherwise, people can ask me. He was very French and he didn't speak very good English. So in his case, like I think he could have just not understood what I said. But. Bernard was way more bilingual, and he spoke English very well, at least from what I heard from his discussions, it seemed that way. So his lack of response was rather interesting. Jean-Philippe, the director of Solidarity for the FEI, then jumped in and answered the question for them because the pause was kind of lengthy. And he jumped in and said that there's like a whole process for them becoming stewards. And I'm pretty sure this was a time where I asked a question and I felt that initially when he started answering it, he wasn't actually answering the question. He was kind of beating around the bush. And like, I just kind of, I commented to like the people around me. I was like, that's not what I asked. Uh, Cause he was talking about like the process of becoming a steward in terms of like what they need to do to become certified as a steward. None of which was related to their schooling on equine behavioral science. So I, I don't know if he overheard me say that, but like he made eye contact with me when I was, mouthing that, which, yeah, like, I, I could have let him finish speaking. I didn't say it loudly. It was just kind of remarking to the people around me. Uh, at that point, he kind of paused and was like, that's a great idea, though, to do more schooling on those things. We'll definitely consider that. So I hope that they actually do, and I, I hope that they consider ensuring that stewards and judges alike have a schooling in pain signals in horses so that they're not rewarding these things or letting them slide in the competition ring. And the great thing now is that with Dr. Sue Dyson's ridden pain ethogram, they have a means of actually doing that in a way that is tangible. And this is something that I discussed in my discussion the day prior about non-horse friendly behavior. It was the fact that we now have ethograms that are related to pain and stress in horses that can be used to very distinctly label behaviors as stress or not stress, which would allow stewards and judges a very structured means of trying to determine when to step in from an equine welfare standpoint or when a horse shouldn't be rewarded as highly. 
and that was kind of the purpose of my discussion the day prior. Didier and Bernard were not there the day prior, but Jean-Philippe was. So he was there for the whole day prior. I think that he probably should have debriefed his colleagues a little bit better. The other thing during the FEI conference is there is an FEI-level dressage rider named Antonella Jeannot, I think her name was. Uh, and she was speaking out about horse-friendly riding and what she teaches her students. And during her speech, she was also on Zoom, I actually looked her up because I wanted to see how she rode her horses. And I found a video of her from 2019 that I think she posted to her own page or someone else posted and tagged her in it. But she's riding the horse quite hyperflex, like behind the vertical. Like maybe not what fully people would consider roll curve because some people require it to literally be chin to chest in order to consider it that. But the horse was very overbent. And what I found interesting is that it was in direct con contradiction with what she was saying. And perhaps she doesn't ride that way anymore. Maybe something has changed in the last four years because people can change. I wasn't able to find any more recent videos. And the ones that I found from prior to 2019 also confirmed that she rode that way. There's some in competition where she was riding quite overbent. So I found that interesting. And if anyone's interested, I can also send them the video that I found of her. I saved it just in case it gets deleted at some point. But... It didn't support what she was advocating for um, in her speech. It kind of contradicted it, unless she's truly not aware that it is, like, riding quite overbent, and she has a different standard of what she considers that to be. But she was talking about, like, horse-friendly riding and how she teaches her students and just corrects dressage and whatnot. Like, for hers, I'm more so paraphrasing because I can't remember as distinctly exactly what she was saying. All I remember is that I felt it was distinctly in contrast to what I was able to find of her riding. I remember more distinctly what the FEI official said because it was so shocking to hear an FEI five-star judge say what he did about LDR in a room full of people that were very much against that. So I remember that very clearly, and I also remember Jean-Philippe stepping in, in my opinion, what what was to, like, rescue him and DDA, the steward, to put on a discussion about how they're going to improve stewards and judges' knowledge of equine behavior, because Bernard didn't know what to say. And then after that question, during the question period, he went off camera on his Zoom call, like, he was kind of just, like, you could see his hands moving off the screen in some cases, so he's still there listening, but he just, like, left after that, and, like, was putting on a suit in the background, like... Like, you could just see him putting on a suit jacket and, like, adjusting a tie. It was kind of weird. So, yeah, he, he, he dipped out after that question, which was interesting. So, the FEI discussion was very eye-opening to me, too, because when Jean-Philippe spoke, he was talking about the initiatives that the FEI does for horse welfare, and he acknowledged that there's room for improvement, which is great, but there was also things that he did, like, quoting directly from the FEI Horse Welfare Code of Conduct, which I found interesting again because he quoted it as if to discuss, like, look at what we're doing for horse welfare. This is so great. But I'll, I'll read out to you what it actually said because it, it was in contrast with what the FEI is actually doing. So that's what I found so interesting because there are certain aspects of it. Like the first two sentences of this FEI horse welfare code of conduct 
in my opinion, directly conflict with what the FBI is actually doing. And the day prior, this was exemplified by way of people sharing numerous competition photos and videos of horses being ridden in a non-horse friendly way, both recently and in the past, which showed like a consistent, uh, I guess, consistent pattern. In addition to there actually being studies that have found that horses at the upper levels are rewarded more highly for being ridden behind the vertical. So there's evidence that there's non-horse friendly riding occurring at FEI competitions, but I'll read you the Horse Welfare Code of Conduct and you can also look it up to read all of it in entirety if you want to. So the very first couple sentences say this. The FEI requires all those involved in international equestrian sport to adhere to the FEI code of conduct and acknowledge and accept that at all times the welfare of the horse must be paramount. Welfare of the horse must never be subordinated to competitive or commercial influences. This is what I quoted in my next speech pertaining to the FEI gaslighting because I felt that Jean-Philippe bringing up this part of the horse welfare code of conduct to be like, see, this is what the FEI believes in was a little bit gaslighty because this isn't what's happening. There's extensive evidence of welfare of the horse being subordinated to competitive and commercial influences because riders at the upper levels are being rewarded for riding extremely hyperflexed. In cases where people have been documented riding in complete roll curve with the horse's head to the chest and those who have documented it have tried to report it to the FEI. They've been brushed off and told it's not an issue that the FEI can step in on, which again shows that it doesn't matter if the horse's welfare is subordinated to competitive or commercial influences because they don't protect them in those cases. There's also a video that I used in one of my presentations that was taken quite recently at an FEI dressage competition where riders were like seesawing their horse's mouth and riding them very behind the vertical in the warm-up ring while a judge, not a judge, sorry, a steward and a veterinarian stood at the sidelines watching it happen and didn't step in. So this part of the horse welfare code of conduct is the very first portion of it and they're saying that they expect riders to adhere to these codes of conduct when that's not happening. They're not actually enforcing it. And I felt that bringing this code of conduct up as a means of proving what the FEI is doing to protect horses was a little bit manipulative because in practice, it's not actually being upheld. And there's so much evidence of this, like recently, like even just over the weekend that this conference is going on, someone posted a photo and video of Ben Mayer riding in draw reins with his horse extremely hyperflexed in the warm-up ring. And this has gotten wiped from the internet since. I really wish I screenshotted and saved it, but it's gone now. And that just happened at the European Championships while this conference was ongoing. So there, the other parts of this welfare code of conduct that I want to touch on are the training methods, which says horses must only undergo training that matches their physical capabilities and level of maturity for their respective disciplines. They must not be subjected to methods which are abusive or cause fear, which again, there is evidence showing that riding hyperflex is both abusive and causes fear. And there's also evidence that of, of trainers engaging in training tactics that cause horses to engage in massive flight behaviors and be explosive and afraid, which is an example of fear. Like there's even evidence of this happening in the competition ring where horses react bigly and are engaging in flight responses. The problem with this code of conduct, in addition to the FEI's rulebook in general, is that a lot of the statements that they make, they don't actually specify what they define to be 
having training match their physical capabilities, for example, or their level of maturity for respective disciplines. And they also don't substantiate what they view as causing fear or what they view as being welfare subordinating to competitive and commercial influences or what they consider to be good and bad welfare in general. So it doesn't hold them very accountable because they can essentially just justify whatever they want with this type of rule book and welfare code of conduct because there's nothing actually specified specifically what they have to do. And there was a lawyer at this conference um, named Jean that spoke about like this exact thing and how that there needs to be more clear cut and dry means of describing what the FEI is labeling as good and bad welfare to hold them more accountable and so that it can be more closely enforced. Because riders could also argue that they're not doing that when there's no clarity in the rule book about what they consider to be good and bad welfare. Um, another thing is that the that this also says that the horses must be allowed suitable rest period between training and competition. Additional rest, rest periods should be allowed following traveling. Again, they don't state what they view to be a suitable rest period. For some, that could just be like a day off or whatever. And for others, that could be like a week or a month off. Um, there's also a, a commentary on health status. No horse deemed unfit to compete may compete or continue to compete. Veterinary advice must be sought whenever there is any doubt. And again, there's nothing that's substantiating what they consider to be not fit to compete. Um, again, there, there, then there are some weird ones too. Like mares must not compete after their fourth month of pregnancy or with a full at foot. Like obviously with a full at foot, no. But for the fourth month of pregnancy, they're so early on that they're not even showing any signs of being pregnant. Like you can't, they're, they're not, they don't even look pregnant. Um, but any, so that's a little bit weird miss. But again, that's like probably the only thing on here that actually has a specific measure of what they consider to not be fixed. It specifies the fourth month, which means that's, that's very clear to riders after the fourth month, you can't compete a pregnant mare. Um, then they have misuse of aids, abuse of a horse using natural riding aids or artificial aids, whips, spurs, etc., will not be tolerated. There's multiple videos of Martin Fuchs, a show jumper, for example, whipping his horse repeatedly in a competition ring in show jumping. Multiple videos. And that is abuse of a horse using artificial aids because he's striking the horse repeatedly so hard that you can loudly hear the contact of the whip with the horse. And again, no one stepped in. Um, so it says that uh, what else should we look at? Humane treatment of horses. Uh, it says that incidents of injuries sustained in competition should be monitored. Again, I don't feel like this is being closely monitored enough. So essentially the code of conduct and other aspects of the FEI rulebook, they say things that on paper sound great, but they're not actually being enforced and upheld, which is so concerning. And to bring them up at a conference like this and speak of them like it's sufficient is not really good considering that they're not actually upholding these things adequately enough because we see so many examples of horses having these very things that they claim to be against happening to them. And in my opinion, what we measure horse welfare off of should be substantiated by scientific evidence and not just like personal opinion. And the evidence supports the FEI stepping in regarding certain treatment of horses that they're not currently stepping in for. So I found it to be very vir virtue signaling and just kind of not, not 
really what's going on <laughs> when they cited that. And it rubbed me the wrong way. I actually edited my PowerPoint for my discussion on speaking up during listening to this because I had such a hard time listening to them say all these things that on paper sound great, but there's evidence that they're not actually upholding them. And so I edited and I added the slide to my presentation about gaslighting in which I quoted the first two sentences of their horse welfare code of conduct and stated that in practice, they're not actually upholding this. So I felt that it was gaslighty for them to cite that as if it's something that they're doing when there's evidence that they're not doing it based off of everything we've seen at this conference. And that was the point in my speech at which uh, Jean-Philippe, the director of Solidarity, actually exited the room with his laptop. He left after that slide, and he came back near the very end of my discussion, but he was gone for all of it. And I'm pretty sure that my presentation is the only one that he actually left for, because it was, like, noticeable, like... Uh, Alina, who is managing the live stream, actually commented in the live stream, Jean-Philippe, director of Solidarity, has now exited the room. And it was like right at the start of my speech and he didn't come out until he come back until the very end. And I'm pretty sure it was the only speech that he left for. I can't speak for that. He might have left for short periods to go to the bathroom, but like this seemed more deliberate. He brought his laptop with him, which suggests he's not going to the bathroom in my opinion. I don't know what he was doing. I also could see him typing up on a document for the entirety of this conference, assuming like presumably documenting what was being said because on the Monday after this final day of the conference, which was a Sunday. Um, they were having a, a discussion at FEI headquarters to discuss welfare and like how to move forward and I guess also what happened at this conference. So that was what was happening the day after and I'm assuming he was taking notes for that purpose. I can't speak for that for sure because I couldn't see what he was writing, but he was writing on a Word document that was quite full and I could see him doing that. Um, but anyways, my speech was one speech after the FEI discussion. The speech before me was by Karen Luke, and she talked about difficulties of speaking up, which went over like peer pressure, gaslighting, and different types of tactics that people use to try to stop people from speaking up, how challenging it is to speak up, but also ways to practice having a voice and whatnot. She also talked about cognitive dissonance and made a comment that's like, yeah, we saw some of that this morning with like the FEI of like representatives. Um, <laughs> and like, I don't know if she spe specifically stated FEI representatives, but they were the only people that spoke before her in the morning. So saying that she saw cognitive dissonance that morning was very clearly referencing them, which was awesome. Go, Karen. It was fantastic. So then after that, it was my speech. Um, I talked about my journey as a rider and like how I've made changes to horse welfare. And I wish that Jean-Philippe had stayed for this part because one thing that I wanted to reference like strongly was the fact that like engaging in practices that damage horse welfare doesn't mean that you're a wholly bad and evil person who's maliciously trying to harm your horse. And this was something that I reiter reiterated quite strongly because during the FEI discussion, Bernard Morel, the five-star judge, right at the beginning of his discussion, he kind of went on this like guilt trippy statement to be like, insinuating that he was getting bullied by people and called a bad person. He's like, yeah, and these types of extremists call me, say I'm a bad person for like being a judge. And I found that odd to bring up because it's kind of just trying to play like the woe is me card. I'm being bullied by people who are concerned about horse welfare. And I'm sure people might have called him a bad person. Maybe that happened. 
But it was just weird to bring up in the context that he did. And again, when the replays are available, you can come to your own conclusions regarding that. But it, it felt weird. So in my presentation, I talked about that. I said that it doesn't mean that you're a bad person if you engage in things that are harmful to the horse. But if you hear about the harm that you're causing and you are presented with facts surrounding that harm and then you repeatedly choose to continue perpetually engaging in that harm, that it does say something about your character and there's no way around that and that we have to be accountable for ourselves. And I talked about accountability quite a lot because I don't think that the FEI is holding themselves properly accountable. And I personally think that their speeches at this conference were evidence of that. In addition to someone like Bernard talking about being called a bad person. It's a deflection of accountability because he's not actually referencing why people called to question his character. And then he kind of supported why they might after he defended LDR, despite it being like discussed at length at this conference. It was just very odd to me. And, you know, like, I don't, I don't, I don't know him well enough to speak of his character and say whether or not he's a good or a bad person. But what I can say is that it is concerning what he defends in, in the face of, evidence showing why he maybe shouldn't defend those things. So I talked at length about like being a good slash bad person and how a lot of people deny or deny holding themselves accountable for how they impact their horse because they don't want to be a bad person. They don't want to accept the fact that they have caused harm to their horse, but that intent is different from impact. It can be your intent to do things right by your horse and treat them with respect and kindness, but that doesn't mean that your actions are going to impact the horse in that way. And a lot of people think they're doing right by their horses and their intent is to do right by their horse, but the impact as the horse feels it doesn't actually feel like they're doing right by them. So it's important to be aware of that. Like we can have the best intentions, but it doesn't mean that the impact of our actions are actually coming across that way to our horses. And I think that part is really, really important and something that was overlooked by the FEI at this conference because I don't think that, like, even the judge that defended LDR, like, I don't think he's an evil, bad person who's like, I want to cause harm to horses. But I think that, like so many members of the FEI, he's complacent and in denial of the information that he is faced with. And that is a problem because it is his job to continue educating himself because he's in a place where he has the means of holding people more accountable and really making a difference in horses' lives for welfare, as does someone like Jean-Philippe, the director of Solidarity. So I think that was really important. Anyways, following my speech, there was a question portion, and one of the questions that I was asked was my opinion on why the FEI doesn't allow bitless riding across all FEI disciplines. And my answer, the gist of it was that I felt it was due to fear that people are afraid of how horses might react and they feel like equipment guarantees safety. And I said to a certain extent, equipment can help make things safer, but that the biggest problem when it comes to horses being dangerous is stress level. So if we deal with the symptoms that are underlying the dangerous behaviors, which generally speaking is stress and pain, that it'll eradicate the dangerous behaviors and fixating on the symptom of a problem, which is the dangerous behavior, rather than what's causing that problem is missing the mark. And that ultimately like equipment doesn't guarantee safety, but what will keep riders safer is mitigating horse stress. And then I thought that that was very important because otherwise we have people who are using equipment in place of training and 
actually looking into their horse's problems. And the issue with that is that when horses are really difficult to manage, people use that to justify using harsher and harsher equipment. And then they're not being properly held accountable for their choice to do that. And they use safety and the need to be safe and try to keep their horse in control as a reason for why they need to do these things. And that's a problem too, because then it justifies using equipment that causes the horse pain and discomfort simply so the rider can control them easier when the actual issue underlying the behavior is the horse's level of stress or underlying pain. And I said that I firmly believe this because I said that the evidence for riding bitless like shows that when compared to bit bitted riding, bitless riding has consistently tested higher in terms of having reduced stress than bitted riding. And as hard as that is for people to hear, especially people who don't want to ride bitless, it's true. The studies that have compared the two, you can argue that they're biased or whatever, but there's more and more of them coming out. They consistently show that. And until there's studies that show that bit, bitted riding has benefits over bitless, I don't really think it's something that should be overlooked. Like, we can acknowledge the fact that there's nuance to the discussion, but we also shouldn't overlook it to the point where we're like, bitted riding is inherently safer. Anyways, Jean-Philippe did not like my, my justification for that. And he started going off of talking about neck ropes for some reason. And what I want to reiterate, which you'll see in the replay, at no point were neck ropes mentioned in the question asked to me or in my response to that question. No one mentioned riding in neck ropes or making riding in neck ropes FEI legal. No one. In my opinion, the reason why he brought up neck ropes was to take a jab at me because in the final portions of my presentation, I had photos of me riding Milo in a neck rope on a beach, not in competition. And I also, in that presentation, never talked about being able to ride in competition in a neck rope, not once. So I think that he brought that up to take a jab at me and my presentation and my horse. And again, that is just my perception of it. I'm not saying that that's definitively the case, but that's what I felt because I cannot think of any other reason why a neck rope would be brought up in the context that he did because literally no one else brought it up. So anyways, he starts going off on a tangent about neck ropes and how dangerous it is and how it will increase risk and that there can be crashes and that it's dangerous to horses and riders and that riders who have dangerous horses could end up riding bitless or in a neck rope and causing accident to themselves and horses. And he then said that he was aware that some horses could go well bitless, but that the FEI is like trying to protect and manage risk and that the mis risk management committee had come to this decision. That's really paraphrasing and shortening what he said, because it was quite a long statement where he just repeatedly was talking about risk and danger. And he acknowledged the fact that like some horses could go bitless safely and that he rode some of his own horses safely, but that, that in competition, it was not safe. And he also referenced eventing and the dangers of that and how bitless would increase those dangers. So my rebuttal to him was one, like, where is the evidence of this increasing risk? Where's the evidence that riding bitless inherently increases risk of danger when we're riding? And I was like, until there is evidence that's not something we can definitively say. It's just a, it's perception. And also what I said is if this increases risk so much riding bitless, why are we still seeing so many accidents occur? Dangerous accidents that endanger horse and rider and in some cases kill horse and rider. I didn't mention the, them dying, but I'm putting this on for emphasis here. Why are there so many accidents that occur in bitted horses? The vast majority of eventing accidents that I can think of 
if not all of the ones that I can think of, are with horses who are wearing bits. And if bits were managing those risks sufficiently, we shouldn't be seeing the instance of accidents that we are in eventing. And I'm adding additional context to what I said because I was only given about 30 seconds to reply. But that was kind of the gist of what I was getting at is if, if bits actually created safety, we wouldn't, we shouldn't be seeing the number of accidents that we are. And we still are frequently seeing horses be out of control, engaging in dangerous behaviors, endangering themselves, endangering riders, whether they're wearing a bit or not. And that shows that there's room for improvement on whatever is creating this danger that shouldn't be ignored. Anyways, Jean-Philippe tried to cut me off like twice or three times and I had to be like, I'm not finished talking, let me finish. And then be like, I'm not finished talking, let me finish. If you let me finish, you'll understand what point I'm actually trying to make. And Eva, the host, actually had to step in and say, let Shelby finish her point. And then at that point, he stopped cutting me off, but it was only when Eva stepped in. And so I went on to say that the biggest common factor in dangerous horse behaviors is stress. And there's a lot of evidence showing that. The studies show that horses pose the greatest risk to riders and handlers when they are stressed. So in fact, I felt that we should be addressing the factors that create more stress in horses, one of which is pain and physical discomfort, as well as fear and emotional discomfort and anxiety. And if we address those factors, then horses would have less reason to engage in dangerous behaviors because they would be less stressed. And that I felt focusing on equipment is missing the mark because it's not addressing the underlying cause of stress that still presents itself, whether horses are wearing bits or bitless. And essentially my point was, is that his defense of why they're not allowing bitless riding across all FEI disciplines is baseless because his entire justification was about risk and perceived danger and they have no evidence of that. So if anyone contacts the FEI or if an FEI official happens to be listening to this, which I doubt they will, provide the evidence. I want to see the evidence of increased risk with bitless riding and the evidence that bit horses, bit ridden horses are inherently safer because if that evidence doesn't exist that's just an excuse and until that evidence does exist it's it it doesn't it's a moot point the other thing that i stated is that riders who have horses that are out of control bitless which was one of jean philippe's statements is that people will come in that don't have the skills to ride bitless and will be out of control and endanger themselves others and their horse I don't believe that's a thing because at the end of the day, people who are competing at the FEI level have paid a lot of money to get to that point and be at those shows. Why would they disadvantage themselves in competition by riding in equipment that their horse is out of control in? In my opinion, that makes absolutely no sense. And if, on the off chance, if anyone would actually do that, I really don't believe it would be a high volume of people. And... Another point that I made is that whether a rider is riding bitted or bitless, they should not be enabled in engaging in dangerous behavior on showgrounds regardless. Like, they should be excused from the warm-up ring or the class if they're endangering themselves, their horse, or other riders. It shouldn't matter what equipment they're using. If they're out of control and they're riding dangerously, excuse them. It's not a matter of equipment. It's a matter of, like, what the horse is doing and whether or not they're endangering other riders. And... So I still firmly believe this point that I made because he had no real rebuttal and like, yes, we were cut off because we had to move on to the next point, but there wasn't sufficient evidence that the risk that he was so afraid of was even present. 
And I think that's an important takeaway from this whole thing is that a lot of their justifications and their excuses as to why they care about horse welfare are unfounded. There isn't sufficient evidence that they're adequately upholding their horse welfare code of conduct. And in fact, if there's really prestigious riders that are engaging in problematic practices that have been shown to cause horses harm... They oftentimes get a free pass and the FEI is willing to look the other way, even when people report those instances to them with with proof. There was another speaker by the name of Crispin who was a horse show photographer that showed a series of photos of a horse literally being ridden chin to chest in Rolker. And he said he had over 1,600 photos of this horse during warm-up. And he showed, like, probably 30-plus images of this horse, all extremely overbent. And he said he reported it to the FEI and was concerned about the horse's welfare and even offered to send them his full memory card of all of the images. And the FEI said they would look into it and then ultimately said it wasn't sufficient evidence. So even when people try to report things that are harmful to the horse, that there's evidence of the harm that these practices cause the horse. If it's a big enough rider, they oftentimes don't step in. Another thing that was discussed at this conference was an incident that happened at the 2011 or 2010 World Cup with Patrick Kittle, where he was riding around on a horse in Rolker and its tongue was hanging out of its mouth and it was a blue tongue. It was blue. You can look it up. You can look up Blue Tongue World Cup on YouTube and see it for yourself. He then stops the horse and leans over and it, it would look to the unsuspecting eye that he's feeding the horse a treat, but he was actually putting the blue tongue back in the horse's mouth and then he continues on riding in Rolker. Someone else's presentation mentioned this and stated that he is actually on a committee for helping decide rules and regulations for FEI now, despite that that happened. And again, that was 2011. Maybe he's changed his practices since, but still very scary that people with that level of corruption and provably harmful riding have been put in positions of power with the FEI. So ultimately, my concerns with this conference were that I don't think the FEI sufficiently showed a desire to change. There were certain things that they said they would consider. We discussed specific initiatives that could be done to help improve horse welfare, which is great. But ultimately, I'm not sure if they're going to be committed enough to do those things, if it means having to step on the toes of high-profile, upper-level riders who have lots of money and give lots of money to the FEI. I'm not fully convinced that that will happen, but I hope it does, and I hope at the very least, that this conference will cause buzz and discussion that will lead to pressure that will make them change. In my opinion, I don't think appealing to morals is going to make enough change for FEI rules because I don't think that a lot of the people in power are operating on the same morals that all of us who want to see change have. I think that ultimately what will appeal to them is loss of revenue and loss of ability to continue participating in the sport. And having their sponsors kind of pull back and just losing public support. I think that'll be what actually pushes them to change because I think the biggest motivator to keep things how they are is the revenue. Lastly, what I want to reference is that there was two different vets that talked about being uh, whistleblowers in the community of the corruption that they saw in the FEI and FEI sports, and they spoke out on that. One of them spoke in French mostly, so it was harder to follow his speech, but there should be subtitles and translation on the replay, and his story was absolutely insane with the level of corruption he faced, and he was, like, threatened by people, and his family was threatened. Very, very scary. Um... His name was Jacques Nardine, so you can check out his speech at the other point at some point. And then the other was the host of this conference, Eva Van Avermaet, that talked about how she was essentially pressured to be pushed out of her role as an equine 
veterinarian because of blowing the whistle on problems that she saw in the competition ring. So there's pressure involved to try to silence people on speaking these things. And there's been enough chances where people have reported problematic practices to the FEI and been brushed off and even had these things covered up. So I personally think that what will bring the most change is financial pressure and the pressure of the social license being revoked from horse sports. And I think that is what will speak to people in charge the most because they are not operating on the same moral high ground as people like myself and others who want to see change in welfare. They're operating on a profit high ground with that being what is most important despite their horse welfare code of conduct saying that commercial and competitive influences should never come above horse welfare. And so it's my belief that the best way to pressure them for change is to hit them where it hurts essentially, which is creating enough discourse in the equine community that they risk losing money and the privilege of continuing to have these competitions. I think that's what will bring the most change because without that, I think it's just going to be a lot of virtue signaling and them doing small things to give the impression that they're doing stuff to change and value horse welfare, but not making big sweeping movements. And I do acknowledge that there's a lot of hoops for them to jump through because the FEI is like a government and it can take some time to enact change. But as it stands, they've had like well over a decade of people being concerned about rural current hyperflexion with very little in the way of change. And if anything, there's been change that's been bad, like th- them removing specifics pertaining to uh, horse welfare in their rule book, like, and the, the specifics in the rule book that discussed what dressage was judged on. And that's concerning because it specifically said that the horse should be on or in front of the vertical, which is concerning. So I think that's a not positive change that was made. Anyways, those are my thoughts on what happened at the conference. And that's my recap of what happened. I encourage you to watch the live stream and come to your own conclusions and listen to all of the discussions and let me know what you think. That's my perspective of what happened, and there was a lot of things that I've missed because I'm just paraphrasing the things that were most memorable to me during that conference, but yeah, that's my experience in Paris at the conference. I really enjoyed being there, and I made great connections with people who were there to speak and listen to the conference, which is fantastic. So anyways, thank you everyone for listening to this discussion. I look forward to hearing everyone's perspective on the live once it comes out. And again, thank you for supporting my podcast and you can check out ways to support me and the podcast links below in the podcast description. And I appreciate everyone who listens to this and supports me. I, it's really humbling to see the level of support that I've gotten in the community and the number of people who supported my endeavors this whole way along. So thank you everyone. And I hope you enjoyed this podcast and yeah, let me know your thoughts. If you have any ideas on how the FEI can improve horse welfare, definitely send it to them, comment it online and let me know because we need as many voices as possible. Basically don't stop speaking out, keep pushing because The other thing that I want to note is that they're definitely feeling the pressure because Jean-Philippe actually approached the host of the conference at some point and asked her to silence me. He said, the Canadian girl with the big mouth, can you silence her? And that's paraphrasing again. Um, I wasn't there, but he said it in front of multiple people and wanted her to silence me and Crispin, the show photographer who showed the very damning photos. And in my opinion, if... 
he wasn't worried he'd have no motivation to do that and it was just very odd for him to try to silence speakers at someone else's conference the host said he could host his own conference if he wanted to control who was speaking there and so that was particularly interesting there was also something that he wanted to get cropped out of the live stream that might get cropped out because he said something that was kind of damning about that indicated some level of awareness of corruption in the sport is all I'll say. So yeah, that was pretty damning and he didn't want that. So he actually went to the, the, the videographer and asked him to crop it out behind the back of the host. And she found out and was like, if you want something cropped out, you can just ask me rather than going behind my back and doing it like that. And so that that is the gist of what happened. So I do think that they're feeling the pressure. Anyways, thank you for listening. And that is the recap of my time in Paris at this welfare conference. And I hope you enjoyed listening to that and listening to my story. And thank you again, everyone. Have a great day. And thank you for listening to the Making Milestones podcast.